Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to What Load of Cobblers, Northampton Town fanzine, reborn in podcast form. I'm Tom Reed and today I'm joined by Northampton lad and Eurosport commentator Andy Bodfish. Hello, Andy. Hello there. Hello, buddy. Um, we've uh, got a bit of a Northampton name talking to us today. Uh, we're about to talk to a talented winger. Started off in non-league before starring for the Cobblers in that brilliant 1986-87 title winning season before playing for Crystal Palace and Arsenal. And being part of the Republic of Ireland squad at USA 94, it's... Eddie McGoldrick. Hello, Eddie. Hi, guys. How are you doing? You OK? Good, thanks, yeah, Eddie. Well, really well, uh, thanks. Uh, I know uh, Andy's looking forward to talking to you and reliving some of those glory days of 86, 87, aren't you, Andy? Yeah, that's it. I mean, the the funny thing is, when you end up sort of, um, I don't know, maybe getting a job in and around the media and you end up, work, you know, getting the opportunity to speak to people that seriously used to idolise, for want of a better term. I mean, I was on the family enclosure back when, you know, Eddie was in his pomp. Hmm. Um, back, back, back in those days, 86, 87, that brilliant car team. It's just a, a buzz to be able to, well, A, sort of tell players like Eddie that and B, just to, to get more of an insight into, you know, what life was like in those days as a player, you know. Must be some good memories for you, Eddie, from those days at Northampton. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. When you look back on them and uh, it's such a long time ago. God, what? 30, what was it? 34 years back to 1986, if I'm right, if my maths is right. Um, yeah, it's crazy when, when you do. You don't often do it. I've done, I done something similar a couple of weeks ago and... Um, it's not often I do reminisce. You think about things, obviously, when people ask you if you're out golfing or you're out and you bump into people. But, um, yeah, it's not until you actually do sit down and reminisce and think about things, you know, and what you achieved. Certainly, it was, uh, yeah, it was, a magic, it was a magical year, you know. Because, Eddie, you, you yeah. sort of came in, I think, at 86, 87, that was your first season, wasn't it, at the Cobblers? Yeah, yeah, Graham had signed me... Um, in about 84 from Ketrin. Yeah. In their first team for two or three seasons. And I just, I'd lost my way a little bit. And um, Graham had obviously watched me for, obviously being manager in Eaton as well. We used to play them. Um, I'd had a lot of clubs looking at me in those first couple of years. And then I kind of lost my way, lost a little bit of confidence. But he, he knew the talent that I had and he picked me up and brought me in. And um, I had two really good seasons um, well, certainly one good season at Nuneaton. Unfortunately, um, we just missed out on the title to Altrincham, and that was when Graham was manager. And he said that he was going to Northampton and that he would uh, he was taking Trevor and uh, Richard with him and that he would come back to me. 
whether it was, I think it was a little bit of both. I think there was a little bit of a financial thing in it where um, obviously the Cobras at that point didn't have a lot of money. Uh, and I think he also thought maybe another year for me at non-league level um, would toughen me up a little bit more. And he said he'd come back to me and he truly did. Because, yeah, because Hill and um, Morley had been there the season before, I think. And I suppose that, I mean, you could almost say that was the final piece of the jigsaw then. I mean, you know, sort of getting all the, having his plan for, you know, sort of reassembling the Nuneaton boys. And it came together in that summer of 86 with you getting there. And then, you know, I mean, a, a season when Northampton Town absolutely blitzed the opposition. It must have been fantastic to to play in a team that was flying like that. It was. Um, and when you think back to some of the players that we had, um, obviously Trevor, Richard being the two standout ones from, you know, playing with them. But Graham had a great, um, he had a great eye for non-league talent. You know, Graham Reed, yeah. Ross Wilcox. Um, but he also, Ian Benjamin, he also scoured, you know, reserve team football at, you know, maybe second division, third division, even first division. Warren Donald came came up from, from West Ham. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Chardy, I think, was at Peterborough as well. Keith McPherson, he's he's he got him at a snip from Reading. Um, Dave Gilbert, I'm pretty sure was was he at Lincoln or was he non-league at that point? So when you go through that team um, and you look at it, you look back now and you think, wow. But we were it was an uncompromising type of football that we played, and I think if you look back, it suited the players that we had at the time because we were fit. We were physically strong. We had some big players, uh, and we got about players. We got about teams, and we and we forced them back. And we played in their half. I remember Graham? It'd be like Peter Glazier would get the ball, and if he caught it, it would be three seconds to the halfway line, and we just squeezed the pitch and won the second balls and the firsts, and you know, and we just overpowered teams generally. We were just too physical and, and quick for them. But um, yeah, it was a brand of football that some on the eye wouldn't. Would look back and say now you know, it wasn't great to watch, but we were really effective and we, you know, we caused a lot of people problems with the style of play that we had and in that season. Some terrific performances and results. Is there is there a match that that you particularly remember uh, uh, above and above and beyond the others sort of thing? There's loads really, and um, there's loads. I think my first goal, I made my debut at Scunthorpe away. I think we drew two all, and yeah. then. Um, we came back to the county ground and I think we got a win um, in our first game. Me and Benjamin scored the win. I'm not sure whether it was Torquay. Uh, it was Torquay. Bang on, mate. Yeah, that was that was my first ever football match, that game. Was it? So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, this is the ridiculous thing. What a, what a season to, you know, sort of pick a team and go for it, you know, because yeah. as I think I've mentioned to Tom before, anyone my age getting into it, being a football fan is brilliant. If yeah, your team yeah. do this week in, week out, you know, and obviously reality kicks in a bit, little bit later. But, I mean, that's why, certainly for me, that season was just something else, really. I went pretty much all the home games and, you know. Yeah. Like you say, think, taking think, teams apart was what, was what we well. did. I think it got momentum. We started off with all we were winning games. Obviously, there was, a, you know, the better the run we went on, the crowd started to increase and, you know, yeah. wins. And just, you know, I remember scoring my first goal at, at the uh, the hotel end against Tranmere, um, yeah, and I think we went. I think the key to it at that point as well, 
obviously earlier on in the season, you're still finding your feet, you're still finding your fitness, and we were getting to know one another. Though we'd had a good pre-season, but it really just started to click. And I think, um, I think at one point, I think I think that team holds the record for the most consecutive games that the same team played that Graham put out. Um, I think at about ten games, I think so. We knew each other by then, and we were starting to get to grips with that league. And you know, I mean, some standout games. I mean, the games we used to have against South End were always a battle. I think Boxing Day four all. Um, you know what a game that was. Yeah. Like Peterborough at home in the cup, local derby on a Sunday. Never stopped raining for the whole game. We won that. I think three one. I was remember just that. Games. Yeah. Away to away to Halifax. I mean, we just steamrolled them into submission and won six two or something, six three. Or you know, if teams scored three against us, we'd always score four. Or five, you know, we had that ability and that power. And Eddie, how long did it take you to re- to realise that this team was going like going places? How many sort of matches? Well, I think just that run that we went on that I just mentioned there a minute ago, where you know we were, I think it was eleven games. I think, and I think out of those eleven games, we won ten of them. You know, yeah, that's, that's a massive haul of points, and you know it sends out a message to everybody below you. I think Preston at that point were. We're hanging on to our coattails. Um, so that that really then, I think we knew at, some, at that point that we, you know, we could maybe do something along the lines of being close. Or, and Graham always kept us grounded. He always kept on top of us. We never got ahead of ourselves. Sure. To keep doing the same things, you know, Sunday nights, um, certainly from my point of view, from my perspective. And I was a good runner. You know, I could run. Um, I was fit. I used to, you know, cross country for the school and the county and athletics, as well as football. So, but you'd wake up in a cold sweat on Sunday night, Monday morning, knowing that we'd be over Aberdeen Park doing increasing demands around that, and then British, yeah. t- British Timpkin on the Tuesday, round the track. It was just incessant. We never stopped. So, and it was in the bank. We knew we were getting fitter and stronger. So, you know, those ten games really proved to a lot of people out there that you know we were going to take some stopping. Quite interested in looking at the attendances started to creep up as well. So they started off fairly mm. small, and then by around Christmas time, when we we hammered Cardiff, I think it was four one, we had eleven thousand in the county ground. So you, you must have noticed the 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 the, the population, the Northampton public, were picking up on it as well. Sort of yeah, of- yeah, and the crowds were you know down the street and you know round the corner, and it was just. You know, it was incredible, the, the atmosphere that it then created. And I think at that point, the club started to bring in the, the trucks, didn't they? That had yeah. the seats in them, that had the trailers. And, they, you know, you remember those crowds and um, and you think to yourself, right. And the atmosphere was all, everybody, he had the terraces and it was standing room only. And, you know, it was just, it created an unbelievable atmosphere. And, and especially that hotel end, it, they almost sucked the ball into the, into the net. At times that year, you, you always felt going attacking that end that they really got behind you, and you know we were real forced attacking that end in those days. Did you play in the uh, FA Cup game at Newcastle? I did. Yeah, I did. Twenty-three thousand yeah. at St James's Park must have been a bit of a yeah an atmosphere. It was unbelievable, and I think I think we we travelled up. I think the first game was called off, wasn't it? Yep. Um, due to snow on the pitch and being frozen etc and then we went up was it called i think it was called off twice to be fair and then yeah. we went up and we were due to play on the tuesday night and we stayed overnight at the gossip park hotel and that was that for us was a real you know 
being a fourth division side for players, that was probably our first overnight stay in such a luxurious hotels that you you probably only guess that first division players at that point would stay. So, um, but it was called off. I think we travelled up on the Monday and we ended up not coming back. The game was called off on the Tuesday. And I think we played on the Wednesday. We said we'd yeah. stay up and it was the game. The game went ahead. Newcastle were confident that would go ahead. So, that experience of going from early part of the season to 1,500, 2,000, 3,000, all of a sudden climbing to 10, 11, 12,000 at the county ground, then to going to St. James's Park and playing, you know, a team of that calibre in the FA Cup. And we went there and we felt we could win. You know, we went there not undeterred that and, and, and not downbeat that we could, we could get a result. And on the night, even, um, and best being even we could get a draw and get them back to the county ground. So, it was uh, yeah, it was a, it was a great night and just unfortunate that the goal we, we lost in the manner that we did, especially after getting back into it when Hilly scored the equaliser. So disappointing. I think it was Paul Goddard, wasn't it? Scored the winner and didn't Tre- Trevor Morley? I think got an injury in that game, didn't he? Didn't he break his leg in that match? I think. <laughs> I think he went off with a knee injury. He did. Right. Yeah, I remember it being quite a, a, a dramatic moment at the time because stretches came on and, you know, yeah. there, there, there was a fear that one of the big players in that season, you know, was going to drop out and the wheels were going to come off. Not that it turned out like that, of course. Yeah, it was John Miller that him and Reedy went for the same ball and I think there was a, it ricocheted off somebody and went towards um, John and I think John just couldn't get out of the way at that point. They hit him and went in. So it was... Um, yeah, it was a disappointing end to such a great night, and you know we were, we had something like I think five or six thousand that came um, to that game, I think as well. So we were roared on, and I don't we done ourselves justice to be fair. I think we we sat in the dressing room afterwards, and we were disappointed that we'd lost. Yeah, and they certainly knew they'd been in the game. So can night. you talk us through uh, Eddie a little bit about some of the characters in the dressing room because you've been through some of the players. We hear we know about what they were like as footballers and you know their skill sets and stuff, but as people and like characters, what 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 was like Richard Hill like, for instance? Hilly was great. Yeah, Hilly was lively. Um, he was always doing something, you know. He was always messing about off the pitch or be the one that would try and start something. So, big character. Yeah, big character as well as Trev. You talk about them, you know, um, loud and brash and, you know, like the laugh. And then you'd maybe go to the other side of it. Ian Benjamin that played up front with, who was a great foil for Trevor. Um, Benj, probably the most unassuming footballer I've ever met. You know, liked to laugh, but he was dead quiet, keep himself to himself, and then would jump in. So, Keith McPherson was the same. You know, for a centre-half, that was as small as he was. He had a big heart. He could jump, you know, the height so so high to get to, get to you know, head balls. Ross Wilcox, again, a Yorkshire lad and Reedy. Coming from Yorkshire, frickly athletic, both Yorkshire lads that like to crack. Uh, Dave Gilbert, again, another one. Absolutely, what a player, what a left peg. He had, Billy was a great crack, great laugh. You know, used to always hold court when we got going. If we were allowed out for a drink, he'd play him with letters. So, yeah, some big characters. Big characters. Charlie, again, sitting down the block at that point. So, he was probably the professor of the group. If we had any that, you know, he was the IQ. Um, that would tell you, you know, if something was answered wrong and, you know, so yeah, some, some big characters, some really good characters. And then you had people like Bobby Coy as well, came in from Wolves, um, an AD man, 
you know, little lady who was from Northampton, little cheeky grin, and, you know, a little glint in his eye that was always up to mischief. So, um, and the big goalie, and was a, what an absolute guy he was, a little, little London, a little Cockney, always in your face, always having the crack, you know, told you how it was, you know, wasn't quite trying to put his foot in that way even in training. So, yeah, we had a nice, really good blend of, you know, balance and, you know, people that can mix it, but also people that, um, you know, like to have a laugh as well. No, I was just going to say, just a couple of randoms there. I mean, John Miller, that is a blast from the past, Eddie. I was just looking at the um, the stats. That was the only game he played in that season. And yeah. that and the that, that, that and a Rochdale game in the league. He yeah. played in just those two matches. And I think also, because when, obviously, Morley got injured, I mean, Graham Carr obviously acted straight away. He got in Paul McMenemy. That's for, right. Yeah. For for a month or so, and he he scored he scored in his debut. He got a couple on his debut against Rochdale. Um, so it, I don't know. All these little decisions your manager there seem to just sort of click, didn't they? You know, yeah. Trevor Morley gets injured. He brings in a new bloke. He scores twice on his debut. You know, it just seemed to all come together that season. Yeah, it did. It did. But Graham was Graham was very clever like that. You know. Yeah. He knew, he knew the lower leagues. He watched a lot of football. I mean, it was probably, and and then, you know, it's not like it is now. You can just go on the stats um, online and pick up quite, yeah, all players. But in those days, you had to get out and watch games and watch players. So, I mean, Graham knew the market inside out. He knew who was available. He knew what type of player that, and he needed somebody that needed to fit into that group because it, it was um, it was a different group. You know, I always remember Andy Blair coming into that group from Aston Villa. Oh, wow, from Villa, yeah. Crikey. And, that yeah, you remember bell. that. And yeah, a few years after, I think, wasn't it? Maybe maybe the next season, 87? Yeah, but yeah, I mean... I think he lasted about two games. I think um, <laughs> he came into the dressing room at half-time and he was trying to play, obviously, because he'd come from Villa and they do things a little bit different the higher up um, you go. So um, I think Graham told him in no uncertain terms um, when he had his hand round his throat. He did know his stuff, didn't he, Graham Carr? I mean, the success he's had scouting-wise since at Newcastle and stuff, when they had their great run under Pardew, it was him scouting, wasn't it? The likes yeah, of, um, yeah, you know, the yeah. Senegalese players that came in. And, you know, he's got a real good reputation, hasn't he, that's persisted Graham Carr for identifying talent and knowing what to look for. Yeah, very much so. And I think if you look at the clubs that he's been around, um, Coventry, he was chief scout. Man City, he was chief scout. Um, yep. Then obviously on to Newcastle. So you know, he knows a player. Obviously, the further he progressed in in that career, totally different. He had a little bit of money to spend, and you know, he used to speak to him and say, "Where are you now? Oh, I'm just in the south of France." Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> a little bit different from Frickley on a cold Wednesday night, Gray, isn't it? Yeah, quite. Um, but fair play to him. He deserved that because he worked so hard and he'd done the miles. All those years ago, so they had a great eye for the player. Do you remember the um, the celebrations for winning the winning the league? Do you actually remember them? I'm sure some, a few beers were sucked that night. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I mean that was it was a nervous night that, and I've just you know I think that night crew had David Platt playing for them. Well, John Pendleton and Jeff Thompson, who I went on to play with at Crystal Palace. Um, and we knew we needed to win that night. I think we'd lost at Lincoln and didn't play well. 
I'd scored that day. We lost three one on a real sort of hot sunny day, bumpy pitch, and you know we were probably a little bit complacent. So we knew going into that next game, they they gave us a white rollicking to be fair. Um, so we knew we need it was great to finish it at home, which we did. But you know, crew gave us a game, um, and then we, well, we obviously I think we won the game two one in the end and. Yeah, the celebrations in the little main stand that was held up by scaffolding. Um, <laughs> I do have a picture somewhere of me standing in a slit, me and Peter Glazier, um, at the top, <laughs> at the back of the stand somewhere, um, singing where all the crowd were on the pitch. So, yeah, yeah, we did uh, we did consume a few beers that night. So, yeah, great night, great. How do you, uh, Eddie, how do you characterise the next season and... Uh, um... Under Graham Carr, I think we finished sixth that season. It was quite an, another building season and pretty successful. But yeah, probably your last season, wasn't it, at the club? It was, I think. And I always remember that we just came up short. We had to go to Sunderland at Roker Park um, on the bank holiday Monday, I'm sure. And we had to win to have a chance of getting into the playoffs. Yeah. Unfortunately, we got absolutely gubbed that night. Um, <laughs> 3 0, I think. So, three one actually. Three one was it? Okay. Stats hat on. Yeah, get it right, Eddie. Come on, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've got stats in front of you. I haven't. I haven't yeah, this is, this is it, mate. He says sitting sitting in front of a spreadsheet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we just came up short. So, um, but in terms of our first year up, um, it was a good season. You know, in terms of just missing out on the playoffs. Um, we've made progress. Obviously we lost Trevor and 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 Richard in that in that promotion season. Hilly going to Watford, Trev going on to uh on to Man City. But we brought he brought in some good players. Tony Agcock came the other way um, mm. and he was a good striker. Obviously he applied his trade at Colchester and scored a lot of goals. So Martin Singleton came in I think from might have been Oxford, a little terrier of a midfield, ginger midfield yeah. player who liked to put his fit in. And Addy always had a goal in him as well. So, yeah, but unfortunately, we just came up short. So, um, and at that point then, I, you start to get, I'd had a good season myself. And I, and, <clears throat> and you start, you see Trevor go, and you see Richard go, and you go, right, OK, am I going to be next? And I knew I was creating a lot of interest from you know, other clubs and Graham said it's just a matter of time. Derek Banks had told him that, you know, I probably needed to go at some point. Um, and, yeah, it was just a case of, of waiting to see when that would happen. And uh, and, that, and that's what did happen. Because so. that's always interesting, I, I find, Eddie. How, how do you, obviously, you fly in, you know you're in good form and that, you know, you, you, you're sort of aware of the rumours. How, how do you become directly, you know, does an agent have a word? Does, does I don't know, does a family member say so-and-so sitting in the stand today, they're looking at you? How, how does all that ma- ma- word of mouth work before, you know, you, you actually know that a club's interested sort of thing? Well, listen, I think back then, you know, we didn't have mobile phones. Um, and you, you, when you knew as a player, I mean, I knew I was playing well. Uh, and what became habit, I don't even remember the old Sunday newspapers, the Mirror, the People, the News of the World. They used to have you know, two pages back or three pages inside the back pages where yeah, sure. I had all the little snippets of who was going where and, you know, you'd always get the papers after a Saturday game and you, you I used to, like anybody else that had ambition, 
you'd hope you'd open it up one day and your name would be linked with somebody. That's how we would find out. Unless, yeah. I mean, towards the end, when I knew I was, at some point I was going to go, Graham used to keep me involved. You know, he, he keep on saying to me, look, you know, so-and-so's coming. Don't worry about it. Just keep playing. Some players you couldn't tell. I think probably in the earlier stages of, of my career, started, he probably wouldn't have been able to tell me. But he knew as I got older, a little bit older, and it wouldn't affect me. So, you know, telling players that somebody's coming to watch you. At that point, I knew there was clubs watching me. So, and I think I always remember, I remember opening up the um, the News of the World one Sunday morning on the way to training. I was travelling in with David Longhurst from Corby. Rest, God rest his soul, my, you know, my good friend. Sure. And uh, he was driving and I was reading the papers and I was like, he was like, I started getting all excited. And he said, uh, what's up with you? I said, oh, um, Man United are interested in me. Alex Ferguson's been sending scouts to watch me. And I was like, yes. Oh, I was like, oh, I was all made up. We were training <laughs> on the Sunday morning because I don't think we played particularly well on the Saturday. So Graham had us in. And I always remember finishing with some crossing and shooting. And I put one in the go- in the hotel end behind the goal. <laughs> and all I heard from the stand was, I hope Alex Ferguson was, wasn't watching that one. Um, <laughs> so he always had a way of bringing you back down. Shank went into the hotel and when there was nobody there and he always had a way of bringing you back down to earth Graham so I just thought right okay I better put that to bed and get on with it otherwise we'll be on Do you know what Eddie that that could be a sliding doors moment because around about that time Ferguson I think signed Ralph Milne from yeah. Bristol City yeah um, <laughs> do you know do you know what I mean so he was looking among I know yeah you know and it could have been could have possibly been me um but Obviously, I wasn't ready at that point. They felt but moved elsewhere, didn't you? So you know, it, yeah, it all turned yeah, so out probably, all turned out yeah, decent. Six months later, that I think I moved on to Palace in the in the January '89. Yeah, so yeah, funny. It's funny how you look at things like that now, and that's how we would find out. You know, like I say, no social media, no Sky Sports, no mobile phones. It was just good old newspapers. And when the manager obviously remember the day Graham. Because I went to speak to Leicester first. Spoke to okay. Leicester, David Pleat. We met David Pleat at um, the Holiday Inn at Crick, um, just off Crick Roundabout. And um, yeah. I had a chat with David Pleat for about an hour. Um, and it was funny because he was interested in Real Fox as well, I believe. And he said to me, you know, I lived I lived 23 miles from, from Leicester and it was probably the ideal move for me. I could have stayed in the area and went to Leicester, but it was something that he just said to me at the end that, you know, he kind of put me under pressure to make a decision there and then, and I wasn't, it was a massive move for me at that point, you know, I was 23, 24 years of age, and um, he said, well, look, you know, if you don't give me an answer tonight, I'm going to go for Real Fox, excuse me, and I always remember coming out and getting in Graham's car and driving back, and he said, I said, what do you think to that, and he said, don't worry about that, he said, I thought exactly that. He said, I wouldn't go there now anyway. So he said, but it's up to you. It's your choice. Um, and the next, he said, he said to me that night driving home uh, that Steve Coppel, we were going to speak to Steve Coppel and Crystal Palace on the Sunday. So, and once I met, once I met with Steve, we, I drove down there. Once I met with Steve and had lunch and spoke to Ron Nodes, I knew that was going to be the club for me, especially with Steve's playing career as, you know, in England and mm. Player playing as a right winger, um, and I think at that point when Graham sold me, I was actually playing in my natural position, which was a sweeper. But Tom and I were chatting about this. Yeah, I let Tom take over. This was a point of sort of debate amongst us. You, your natural position was a sweeper. Yeah, I grew up as a kid. 
my whole playing career at school football, county football, district football, um, up to the age of 16, um, before I got in Ketron's first team, I played as a sweeper behind a set. We played a, black, a flat back four, but we had one dominant centre half that would go and attack the ball, and I would just drop off and cover the full backs and, and cover the centre back. That was my natural position growing up as a kid. Right, because we, yeah, because I, I remember you for Arsenal and 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 being a, a bit of a, like a tricky winger and everything, and we weren't, we couldn't just couldn't picture you as a um, sort of a catanacho or a sweeper or something, but I can sort of see it now. You you like to attack the ball, and that was something that you really enjoyed doing in defence. Yeah, I mean, I, I preferred, like I say, we always had one dominant centre half that would go and attack the ball, but I, I like to step out. I mean, at that point, growing up, Rudy Kroll was, you know, in the great Dutch team. You know, he was probably one of my my heroes at that point. And then as I got a little bit older, Franco Baresi, um, you know. Yeah. Came, but it was funny because I was playing there for about four months in Ketron's youth team in reserves. And then I got called into the first team at the time, Colin Clark. And I made my debut away at Altrinham. And at that point in the early 80s, Altrinham were the best non-league side in the country. Um, full of England, C internationals. And they'd won the title back to back. Very strong, very physical, old pros that dropped down to earn a few quid towards the end of career. And I played fullback. Colin Clark said to me, I can't, I can't play your centre-back. He said, you're just too small, you're too slight. So I played fullback. And that's where the progression of fullback then, within a year, I think, I'd started to play as a white. Because all I used to do was just bomb on. So I, I played further up the pitch there. And that's when I started to play as a right winger towards the end of my career at Kettering. And then... For Nuneaton Bar, and that's why Graham, that's why Graham, that's why Graham played me, and that's where he signed me to play for Northampton. So it's okay. interesting. Never grew up playing as a winger; I was always a defender. <laughs> um, in terms of your your Crystal Palace career, I've I've, I've I've done a bit of reading on it and stuff, and I spoke to uh, Gary Thompson, who played for Northampton later on, and he was at Palace uh, for a time, and he said he said how vibrant the uh, dressing room and the team was uh, for Palace. Uh, Perhaps you can talk us through it. Yeah, I remember Tomo. And I'd, I'd watched Tomo on the television playing for Villa. And I mean, and he was he, he was a great lad. Such a nice, gentle speaking, but an absolute beast on the pitch. Yeah. Um, and I always remember him coming <laughs> to Palace. It was a, and he was kind of a foil. He used to step in for, for Wrighty. Wrighty and Brighty were injured. But when you talk about characters... And I always remember the first day in training and um, when I went down to, to Palace and I turned up in my, um, I went down on the Sunday night and I stayed with a, a player called Gavin Neblin. Uh, and I had a, I hadn't given my uh, sponsored car back, which was sponsored by Bells. <laughs> so I, I love remember, this. Listen, this is true. So I always remember driving into the training ground at Mitcham and um, first and foremost, Regardless of the state of the training ground, it was a training ground. We never had that at Northampton, so it was totally something different already. We used to get yeah. changed at the ground and then walk over to Abingdon Park if we didn't train on train on the pitch. <laughs> so um, training ground anyway. And I always remember pulling up and going in, and it had my name all over the side of this car. And I was sitting down. Steve introduced me to the players, and I was having a chat. And Andy Gray walked in. Midfield, the little midfield player. Um, yeah, yeah, he got a few caps under Graham Taylor, didn't he? Andy yeah, he Gray, did. He went on to yeah. Villa a couple of years later and then yeah. played for Spurs as well. He comes in and shouts, 
Whose effing little car is that outside with a name all over it? And I was sitting there <laughs> thinking, really spitting out a toast and tea cakes. And I was like, um, and I went to put my hand up and Gavin said, don't bother. He's just, he knows who it is. Don't worry. <laughs> that's the type of character that I was then going into. Um, right and bright, you know, very, very demanding as players. Always wanted the ball in the box early. Um if you didn't put good crosses in, they were on you. So, yeah, it was full of characters, full of real big characters that if, you know, if you let it get to you, if you felt at some point a little bit weak mentally, they'd be on you and you had to, you know, you really had to sort of dig deep. And it's a massive, it was a massive um, change for me in terms of dressing rooms from going from the Cobblers to, to Crystal Palace. And it was something well, you that... Did- were you involved that night at Anfield, Eddie? You know, the 9 the, the were, were you playing that night? Yeah, I played, yeah. Were, were you playing? Right, because there's a lot of exciting things happening with Palace. I mean, I think they were, you were quite good to watch, weren't you, under Steve Coppel? Obviously, reached that cup final in 90. But that, that was in the sort of September, October, wasn't it? That defeat at Anfield, when Liverpool were just an unbelievable team. You know, obviously weren't playing in Europe because of the other issues yeah. at the time, but... Yeah. You know, I remember watching that on Saint Greavesy, and a yellow, yellow and blue kits, wasn't it? Yeah, yellow tops, blue, light blue shorts. I was just never sure whether you played there. I mean, that must have been quite something We've, to yeah, be on the end of a Tonkin like that at Anfield. Oh, thanks for reminding me, Andy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we played in white. Well, I, we, we you've white, got broad shoulders, weight. Eddie. You can take it. You know, I've never been to a World Cup, mate. So, um, uh, you know, the, the odd bit of joshing is allowed in my book. But, but do, do you remember that night particularly? Or, you know? Yeah, and it's ironic because at some point you go to yourself, two years previous, I was playing yeah. in the fourth division. Mm. And literally within two seasons, which equates to about 18 months. Quite. Uh, equates. I'm walking out at Anfield um, against a team full of internationals yeah english irish welsh household names world stars and you think wow and i didn't think to myself that i'd arrive but i just thought to myself bloody hell i've come a long way here um, in such a short space of time yeah and, it, and you and subconsciously at the back of your mind you don't want to fail and it's amazing that everybody that speaks about that game um they don't believe me when i actually say for 20 minutes we were actually the better side <laughs> and then once the first goal went in, we kind of that we thought, oh, here we go, and we were three 0 down at half time before we knew it. And then the second half, well, it was just a blur. It was like they had, like they had fifteen players on the pitch. We just couldn't get near them. Um, and the cop was roaring. Um, and John Aldridge, it was his last game. He was on the bench and he was going. He signed for Real Sociedad, and it was his last game for Liverpool. That's a great shout, Eddie. Honestly. Really, they got, is. they got a penalty at the cop end. Yeah, Kenny Dalglish. He was sitting in the dugout beside him. Kenny Dalglish said to him, "Get on, get your tracksuit off. You're going on." He came on. I didn't even warm up. He came on, picked the ball up, put it on the spot, and scored the eighth goal. <laughs> Fantastic <laughs> story that. Those sort of defeats sometimes happen in football. Those sort of transoms. But there were plenty of uh, really high points at, at Palace. You, I think, Eddie, you. Set up Ian Wright for the playoff final in 88-89 for a goal there and you got promoted to the first division. Yeah, so obviously signing for 
when Graham sold me from the Cobblers in 89, again, talking about that only a year previous, I'd been playing in the old fourth division. Yeah. Five months later, we won the playoff final over two legs against Blackburn. I scored the away goal at Blackburn and we got absolutely battered that night by Howard Gale. He scored, I think he scored a hat-trick. Wow. Um, yeah. And he missed a penalty as well. And I scored, I scored an all-important away goal with about five minutes to go. And we just felt then that we had a chance at Sellers Park, you know, with 30,000 there, with right and bright up front, we were always going to have a chance of getting back in the game. And yeah. uh, we started well, bright, rightly scored. And then I won the penalty for the second goal, which Dave Madden converted. All of a sudden, now it's three all in aggregate. Uh, goes to extra time. Great game. Blackburn had a really good good couple of chances. Perry Sockman made some really good saves. And then, yeah, I think 119th minute of extra time. Went past the full-back. Brighty sort of, John Pemberton had thrown it over my head. I spun, Brighty chested it down, went past the full-back. And it was just looked like it was going to run out of play. I hit it from the byline. I slid into it. And it was pin perfect, pinpoint for Brighty never moved. He just got in between the two centre-halves. And, and if you remember the goalkeeper, Andy, it was Terry Geno was in goals that day for Blackburn. And he just stood there. He was never going to get it. So, literally, that was it. 3-1 or 3-0 on the day 4-3 on aggregate and the final whistle went yeah and the the rest is history uh, 1990 FA Cup final I think, I think you were on the bench for that one oh you missed out on it didn't you Eddie but still a great achievement for the club while you were there listen everybody has ups and downs in their yeah. career not just life we all have it um, and it was the first real setback really in probably three or four years mm. of, of playing at that you know fourth division level and then working my way up it's something that I'd always dreamed of doing, probably from the age of five. I'd watched every cup final. And the cup final then was the biggest game of the year. It was the last game of the season. It was the biggest game of the year. It was bigger than winning, you know, winning the league, really, in some cases. Um, mm. And I started, I played the majority of the games that season up until we played Liverpool on the 27th of January, 1990. Went into a tackle at home. We were playing them at home, Sellers Park. Went into a tackle. Um, and my knee locked out with John Barnes. I think it was Barry Venison as well. And I had a bucket handle tear of the cartilage. And effectively, that I missed all the, the, the FA Cup run always started, didn't it? Um, or the bigger teams the first week in February. Yeah. Uh, and that was the week after. And I missed the whole cup run. And verbally missed the final as well so that for me is the biggest 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 disappointment and it still doesn't upset me now but it's still well we can clearly tell Eddie the way you're talking about it with with yeah. such animation it, it still seems to be quite raw for you and how it could is. it not be it is yeah yeah and especially with, in this lockdown with all these reruns going on like on yeah. Saturday on Saturday it was on and I had I'd been and played golf with my friends and then they all started ringing me and texting me saying, oh, the FA Cup final's on. And I'm like, I just couldn't reply. A couple of them were ringing me. I said, look, don't even mention it. It's still like to this day is like, yeah, no, it, it cuts me. But it's, it's the way it is, you know, I had to mm-hmm. bounce back. I actually missed it. I actually had a chance of going to the 1990 World Cup finals that year as well with Ireland. I knew Jack had been looking at me and, you know, although he had a settled squad, he said, you know, we've got injuries and a few players are struggling. So 
that year it was just a double whammy for me as well. So missing the cup final and then, you know. Had, had you made your international debut by then, Eddie, to, to sort of be in, in the reckoning that season, 89-90? I hadn't, no, this year after, purely and simply because of that knee injury. So, yeah. you know, it's all hypothetical, to be perfectly honest. But, but I, ha- it's, uh, I had, for argument's sake, had you not been injured, you would have been fresh for that run-in and Jack Charlton would have been looking at you and probably yeah. would have given you a game, wouldn't he, in the run-up yeah, to Italy? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, it was a double whammy. But, listen, that's... Um, that's that's the sport that we play. You've always got mm. that chance, and you know that you could pick up injuries. But it took me a long took me a long time to get over that. It took me a long time to to recover from that mentally. It was um, it was tough. It was a tough one, and I struggled at the start of the following season. I really struggled um, mentally with that. Um, so, but fortunately, fortunately, it came good. I had to I knuckled down and came through, and um, you know yeah. went on again. You won the uh, Zenith Data Systems that year after, was it? Or was it? Yeah, we won that. So it was nice to actually go back to Wembley and get on the pitch. Yeah. We beat Everton 4-1. So that was nice. Um, yeah, it was, we had a good we had a good. Because there, there were some random, random tournaments around then, weren't there, Eddie? Because obviously back-ended British clubs not being in in Europe. And I think there were one or two extra tournaments, weren't there, that the FA put on? To sort of, you know, give us a bit of extra football, really. I was a little bit too young at the time to understand properly what was going on. But obviously, you know, you're playing for teams which are in cup finals and, you know, competing for honours. But you know that should you go on and win, you're not going to be playing in a European competition, which must have been, which must have been strange back back in the day. Yeah, it was. I think there was the Simod Cup. I think I made my debut for Palace in the Simod Cup against... Now, whether that was the same cup um, as the ZDS, the Zenith Data Systems Cup, that was called, wasn't it? So, um, <laughs> I think know, it was the same cup competition, just different sponsors just, just every different season, sponsors, I think. Yeah. I think, yeah. yeah. So, if you went out of the FA Cup early, you know, and you were still in that, you still it's obviously like the Checker Trade Trophy now that the lower, lower league clubs play in, and it's a great opportunity. And, you know, I defy anybody to sit, regardless of the, the competition, you know, to have a day out at Wembley and play, you know, at the home of football is, is an amazing, you know, occasion. So regardless of what, you know, League Cup, FA Cup, Zenith Data, Checker Trade, it's an amazing day for supporters yeah. and players. So sure. know, it was to, to actually then, it kind of went a little way. It kind of went a little way to appeasing what had happened to me the year mm. before. But um, obviously... You know, I, that that was still obviously at the back of my mind, and but that 1991 season where we finished third, um, I got through that mentally and physically, and started to get back on top of my game. And that season, are you know, you're talking about Andy? You know, because of the high school disaster, clubs were not our, our clubs were not allowed to play in Europe, and we actually finished third that year. We finished mm. third, and for a club like Crystal Palace, you know, I think. It was who won it? Arsenal was second. Did Arsenal win it? Arsenal won it. What, United. Was what second. year are we talking about? No. 1991. That was the year we finished. Third. That was Arsenal. Yeah, that was Arsenal that year. Yeah. Yeah. So for a club like Crystal Palace, you know, we'd got to obviously to Wembley the year before. We kicked on. Yeah. Um, we had some good players. He brought, like you say, you mentioned Gary Thompson earlier on. Yeah. Um, Tom. So Andy Thorne came in. We started to you know, really get some quality players, you know, the, the, the further we went. And um, 
again, Steve was very much like Graham in that sense. Him and Ron Nodes used to watch a lot of games at non-league level, at lower league level, third division, fourth division, and pick up bargains and then mould them into you know, a good side with good characters and got Wrighty from non-league at Greenwich Borough and gave him an opportunity. Brighty came from Leicester Reserves. Um, so, like I say, Jeff Thomas, Pemberton, Pardew um, were all playing, you know, non-league football. So, myself. And then he blended that in with a good, you know, mixture of youth players coming through like Salako and Richard Shaw. And, yeah, it was a real formidable side. real formidable side that, that 1991 team was. So, to finish third in the league that year was unbelievable. When we sort of think about that, you, you'd had your you had your injury, you'd fought back, you'd um, you knuckled down and everything. And then um, you, you earned yourself a move to Arsenal, which I think is, you know, a real testament to your, your spirit and your your ability. How did, how did that move come about? And were you sort of excited by that move? Away with the Republic of Ireland, I got a call. Well, Alan Smith, who was the manager of Palace, Steve had resigned, and Alan Smith, who was his assistant, took the job. We were staying in, uh, out in the country somewhere. We had a World Cup qualifier the next, I think on the Wednesday, I think. And he called me and said that Arsenal had made a bid and did I want to speak to them. And um, I, had to, I had to speak to them. I never really wanted to leave Palace. I think if, I think if we'd have stayed up, it would have been a tough decision to leave Palace. But... Um, I spoke to Smudger and he said, George Graham's going to ring you. And he said, basically, you know, I've been told to tell you that you've got to listen to what they've got to say. And obviously you would. Arsenal are a massive club, um, huge. And um, But, you know, the club needs the money. We've gone down and we need that £2 million to strengthen the squad. And effectively, you've got to go. So I flew back, spoke to, I went down and knocked Jack up at about eight o'clock in the morning and got him out of bed. And I told him what had happened. And he, I said, do you mind if I go back? I'll come back on the Monday and I'll fly back in. So I had a meeting with Arsenal on the Monday, flew on on Saturday, I had a meeting with Arsenal on the Monday and um, signed a deal there and then after speaking to George. Did you have a moment walking into those marbled halls of um, Highbury then, thinking, hang on a second, a few years ago I was at Nuneaton and now I'm at Arsenal. It mu- there must have been a moment where you thought, wow, this is, this is quite an amazing story, really. It's, yeah, it's, it's, and that's, that's when I actually, you know, that question, Tom, that you just asked me there, you know, I think if you remember that what I said earlier on, it's it's only things like this when you reminisce and start to talk about what you actually did and what you achieved, and you actually think, wow, you know, not a wow in the sense of big headedness, but yeah, you know, I was just I was just a little boy from Corby that just wanted to play football all his life, mm. you know, and then all of a sudden, and it's ironic, and I don't know whether things are meant to happen, but when my parents moved from Dublin in 1960. I was yep. born half a mile from Highbury on a road called Blackstock Road. That's where my parents used to live. Really? Uh, yeah. So when we were all born in that flat. It was literally half a mile from Highbury. Although my dad used to go and watch Spurs play. He'd never go. Okay. Watch. So, but I literally lived in the Highbury area. I was brought up in that. Well, we, I was born and then we moved in 1965. My dad got a job in the steelworks in Corby and we moved straight away. But it was ironic, really. I don't know whether it was fate or, or just a coincidence, really, to be perfectly honest. So, but to go through that, yeah, you know, when playing there for Palace and you walk through the marble holes at Highbury, it was always a, it was always a massive night when you went there. Tight ground, 35,000. Mm. Good side you're always playing against. They were going well under George Graham. So, and again, that that filled me again every level of. And I tell young players now when I speak about 
you know, the career that I had, every level of football that I got to, I wanted to get to the next level. So I started yeah. to build foundations of like, so when I was, you know, my ambition, obviously, to when I was non-league was to get into the league. And then when I got to Northampton and Graham gave me that opportunity and had the success that I had there, I wanted to get to the championship or the first division. And then obviously playing for Palace and doing and then making my debut for my country. You want to then start starting to think, maybe you see yourself playing for a bigger club. Um, so I always broke it down into little segments and I'd, every level of football that I got to, what, at what level or what club, I wanted to get to the next level. So um, I was just driven really to, you know, to do that. And, you know, I always had that in me. I was always, I always worked hard. You know, growing up as a kid, I was never the best player in, in my school team or my Sunday team. But I worked harder than everybody else. Mm. You know, that's just that's just the way I work. So, um, and it and it stood me in good stead. It stood me in good stead. So, but it was it was not difficult. But you're you're a little bit apprehensive. You know, you're you're going from being probably the biggest fish in the in the pond at Palace, which I'd earned that right to be that because of my performances and. And yeah. like a transfer fee, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're going into a dressing room that, looking back at that Liverpool dressing room when we when I first we played there in that nine 0 defeat, was full of full internationals, yeah, all over the place. Everywhere you looked, every corner of the dressing room, there yeah. was an international or a, a Danish international or a Swedish international, and it was just, it was a little bit intimidating. I thought, right. You know, I've got to hit the ground running here. Right, he would sold right the season before, and he'd, you know, he was great. Right, he took me under his wing there. Said the boys are great laugh. You know, Paul Merson, Kevin Campbell, Alan Smith, Ian Wright, Tony Adams, Lee Dixon, David Seaman, Steve Bold, Nigel Winterburn, Paul Davis. You must have learned a lot as well from playing with players of that that. Age. Oh yes, uh, very much so. It was, you know, you know, you, every day in training that you had to perform. George was demanding like that. The players were demanding. They were, they were well drilled, and you know, they did. Nobody wanted to be out of that team. They were, they were a good side. They, they had success um, in league, winning leagues and cups, and you know, you had to earn the right to play. So nobody was going to roll over and let you play in that in that team just because you know you come in for a decent amount of money. So um, yeah, it was it was tough, but something that I relished, and you know, I was looking forward to. Andy, um, perhaps you could talk us through a little bit about um, some of Eddie's highlights and stuff at Arsenal and some of the memorable moments, and Eddie can talk, you know, about them as well. Well, yeah, I mean, the one I remember obviously was those those back to back European finals that Arsenal got to '94 um, and '95. I mean, Eddie, standardly age, November '93. You yeah. you scored a goal. I think it was a ten nil aggregate thumping, wasn't it? Yeah, of, of, it was of standard. Yeah. What you had to get used to under George and what a lot of people did, George was probably one of the first coaches in modern football in that sort of mid-90s that started to rotate his team. So mm. he would think nothing of of changing the back four, very rarely changed the back four, changing the midfield onwards up to the forwards. He could make five or six changes. He'd always keep the goalkeeper, the big goalie, Seaman and Dixon, Winterburn, Bold and Adams, always kept them unless one of them was injured. But he rotated his midfield and his and his front line. Where I actually 
I actually played the first 22 games of that season. And the lads were like, saying, like, you're, what, you need a son of George or something, like, you know. I, I said, <laughs> Paul Merson gave me that nickname. And I said, listen, it'll change, you know what I mean? I'll hit a, at some point, I'll hit a wall. <clears throat> and George was very good at recognising that, you know, things like that. And if you're looking a little bit tired and jaded. So I'd played on the, I'd played on the uh, Saturday, I think, against the Villa. And then we went to, we'd won the first leg, which I started the week before or two weeks before, 3 0 at home. And I was on the bench for that night in the Asian, came on at half time. I think we were 5 yeah. nil, 4 0 up at half time. Well, I set up two goals and then scored the best goal of the game. Yeah. Uh, in my opinion, anyway, and still, you know, a lot of people say to this day it was, but... Eddie, honestly, but, in the opinion of a lot of Arsenal fan blogs as well, we've been doing our research, mate, and they, they rave about your goal that night. You set up goals for Merson and, and Kevin, Kevin Campbell. Campbell. Yeah. And then, yeah, got the pick of the bunch yourself. But the ironic thing is, Andy, Tom, I got a bollocking after that game. I think we won the game 10-0 in aggregate. <laughs> and we, we, I've got a picture somewhere of me, Paul Merson and uh, Kevin Campbell after the game, and because we were the goal scorers... Um, and we'd swap shirts and we were there with our tops off and our shirts over our shoulders and walked in the dressing room and I couldn't see George and I think he'd gone to the toilet and Stuart Houston started having a go at me and we just won the game 7-0, 10-0 and I was like, all the lads were looking at him going, what are you talking about? But right towards the end, their fullback had gone on a run and done a 1-2 and I never tracked him and, you know, oh. and it, he bothered yeah. me for that. And George came out of the toilet and was like, Stuart, come on, we've just won the game 10 0, you know, <laughs> on, on aggregate. So, you know, give him a break. And I just sort of looked at him. But yeah, so again, obviously, we went on. I think we played. Who did we play later on towards. Torino, I think. Torino and PSG were, you know, big opponents. Massive names. Massive names. Yeah. I remember going, we were going to the park, Park de Prance in Paris and. Yeah, brilliant performance. And, you know, so we got there. And it's it's funny because we were massive underdogs. And I always remember we pulled up to the ground and George had been going on about it all week saying, and the podium that they use for the presentation at the end. Is of, this the final you're talking about? This Copenhagen. is the final against yeah, Palmer, yeah. 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 So as the bus was backing into its space, you could see. I know if you remember Copenhagen, it was it was a nice ground, but the four sides were missing. The corners in the corners, they, they, yeah, it wasn't one of those wrap around grounds. Yeah, so it had four stands, and the corners were like open. a Sabutio ground, isn't it? Yeah, the park yeah, in Copenhagen. <laughs> and we could see the podium all set up, obviously to come on at the end of the game, and it had winners, Palmer. So whether what? Yeah, serious, <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true that. And we, George was like, "Have you seen that?" And we were all like, "Wow!" So that really got our backs up. And and you came game. on at the end, didn't you? You got a bit. Of, yeah. you got a bit of time on yeah, the pitch in that time game. At the yeah. end, about I don't know, fifteen minutes or something. So yeah, brilliant. Yeah, another another great night. And yeah, just you think, you know, you go up and I was just looking through some old stuff. You know, when you do reminisce and. I, went, I found a picture of me actually holding up the cup and I've got a picture framed somewhere in my garage um, of actually doing that. So, um, yeah, just brilliant memories to look back on and, uh, and another great night. And you think, yeah, you want more. You'd beaten a really good side as well. They, they, were, they were you know, a, cl- a classic um, Palmer side. Did, did you at that point think, you know, this is 
all go really well and we can kick on and kick on and you know my my, my involvement and stuff will continue on an arc how how do you look back on the time after that we used to get bonus at the end of the year and you'd get paid pro rata as to how many games you played so i think in that first season i played 37 times in all you know and you think to yourself because george used to rotate it and you know probably from playing at palace i probably would have played probably 45 50 games but 37 mm. times and you think yeah well, i'm happy with that so now obviously the plan is to kick on and stay injury clear and um and it just started to unfold a little bit i picked up an injury um pre-season the following year and you know then you're chasing things and it's difficult to get back in and somebody comes in and takes your place and you know you're running out of the squad and yeah things just you know, sometimes you go from, like I say, a big fish in a small pond to being a tiddler in the ocean and, you know, you have a couple of bad games. And Arsenal fans, you know, there was a majority of them that were, not majority, there was a, a small section of them that were could be unforgiving. You start to maybe force things and you, you might not start in the team and then you push yourself a little bit harder to try and get in the team. And, you know, I just picked up a few more injuries that year than I wanted to. I was always a good, I always recovered well from, apart from the, the the cup final the one that kept me out of the cup final the the cartilage injury but the yeah. general groins and hamstrings I always recovered quite quickly but then obviously my you're getting older you know I'm now 27 28 and your body's yeah. older and you know things just the dynamics of your body start to change and yeah it was just you know it's just it's something that you have to it's part and parcel of football and you have to accept and you know I probably only played about 23 24 games that season so it wasn't compared to the season before, but sure. you know, injuries are part and parcel of football, you just got to go on with it. Yeah. Did you see, Eddie, that, um, or did you hear that um, Dermot O'Leary, the TV host, uh, said that you were his favourite player for Arsenal? Yeah, it's funny because, obviously, when I made <laughs> my debut for Ireland and then I signed for Arsenal, yeah. when I made my debut for Ireland, I was a Palace player and I signed for Arsenal and, and somebody somebody said to me, Dermot O'Leary, yeah. So I've actually, you know, that's that's a that's nice. That's nice, very nice of him to say that. Obviously, with that Irish connection, and he's a, a big Arsenal fan. So, yeah, there's a big Irish connection to Arsenal. Full stop, isn't there? There's a lot of Irish uh, supporters of Arsenal. A lot of uh, yeah, sort of Irish connection well, I think, there. I think that really era, nice. that, that that sort of 70s, 80s era of Stapleton and Brady <clears> and Pat Jennings. It was a you know. Pat Rice was an Irish international as well. There was there was a massive Irish contingent in the Arsenal team in those days. So, yeah, yeah. obviously that, that that's where that that comes from. Well, unless there's a glaring uh, omission here on my part, I think you might even be the subject of a sort of quiz question answer, Eddie. I think you that goal against Liège, you might be the last Republic of Irishman to score for Arsenal. Could that be right? Can you well, think of anyone since? Um, no, no. To be fair, no. Seriously. So I think great. I think that's a great question. That, I might use that one, Andy. Let's talk a bit about your um, your Irish experience um, playing internationally because you had some really good days and moments for Arsenal, and you you went to the World Cup, didn't you, in in USA '94? '94, yeah. So, and again, that achieving that, um, growing up as a kid, you used to watch the World Cup. Obviously, when it came around every four years, you were glued to that. So. To have that opportunity and be part of that, um, playing for the Republic of Ireland. And the thing about it is, I was born in England, but I've been brought up. If there's an Irish way of being brought up, I was brought up that way. You know, 
I'd always wanted to play for Ireland. I think my first player profile when I made my debut for Kettering was, you know, ambition. And the last question was, what's your ambition in football? And it was to play for the Republic. I said to play for my country, the Republic of Ireland. So although I spoke with an English accent and I was born in this country, I always wanted to play for Ireland. And actually, I actually got called up to play for England before Ireland and I turned them down. And no, not Did very, you really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And Steve Coffin. And, uh, and when was Coffin, that? That would have been just before I got called up to play for Ireland. Um, Steve called me into the office and I thought, right. Again, you look at the papers and people, pre- you know, the journalists are ringing you saying, oh, you're not far away from a call up and blah, blah, blah. Jack's been to watch her and he's sending people out. And then Steve calls me into his office and says, got good news for you. And I'm sitting there going, yes. He said, um, <laughs> great. Graham Taylor likes you, and <laughs> he's thinking that he wants you to play for the under twenty ones or in a B game before, like he calls you into. And I was like, just, just sat look. I just sat looking at him in silence, and he's like, "You're not going to say nothing." And I was like, "I don't want to play for England." <laughs> he's like, what do Eddie, you, you want come to- from Northampton Town, and now you're choosing which country you'd like yeah, to play for." Exactly. <laughs> He said, what do you mean you don't want to play for England? I said, I'm Irish. He went, you're born in London. I said, I don't care. My parents, <laughs> my parents are from Dublin. I'm playing for Ireland. I'm going to hang on. Well, it might not happen. I said, it will happen. Believe me, it will happen. And literally a month later, it did. So, so I made my debut. And when was that, Eddie? When was, when was your international debut for Ireland? That would have been February 92, I think. Okay. Yeah. February 92. Just been in a qualifying group with England, hadn't hadn't the, the Irish for for Euro '92? So you've yeah. obviously come it come into that cycle, haven't you? '92 to '94, and you, yeah. you you've made you've made the squad. Yeah. Yeah. So, but again, it just shows you the highs and lows of football. That yeah. for me was is people say to me, "What was the best moments?" I said, "Well, listen, every what's the best club you've been at? Obviously, the stature of Arsenal would you'd say that was probably the best, but." At every single club, I had good and bad. You know, even Man City when I went to City there. You know, um, but that's the pinnacle of anybody's career, playing for your country. Yeah, Eddie, what was it like um, joining the Irish dressing room as a, a guy from Corby? You know, obviously Irish roots and stuff. Were you were you welcoming with open arms and bidding well? Well, listen, Tom, we had uh, that squad of maybe twenty four players. Andy Townsend. We had only five, six Irish-speaking players. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So the rest were from Glaswegians. <laughs> you got to be, you got to be careful here, Eddie. Yeah, yeah Glaswegians, Cockneys, <laughs> Brummies, um, yeah. Scousers. Um, you know, it was just a mixed bag. You know, and yeah. I mean, I think the the saying back then was, if you had an Irish red setter, you could play for Ireland. Jack to bring you up and ask you if you've got an Irish and as, 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 as Tony Cascarino proved, you didn't even have to have an Irish setter. You just had to say you had one. Yeah, you just had to have a great, a great, great grandparent. And exactly. I, actually I actually don't think Tony had one. I listened to him on Talk Sport about six months ago, and he, he, he relayed that story saying that Jack winged it and said that he had a great grandparent, but he never actually did. So no. Um, something like that, yeah, it was something crazy. But like by that, that stage, they thought, oh, it's gonna, you know, we're not gonna bother telling anyone unless nobody asks. So yeah, I think yeah. he, had, he had an international career after it was established. Yeah, and we had a team in that. That that again, that ninety four. But you know, it's great story. 
from 92 through to 94, that team, you think about some of the players. Very good song. Oh, completely. Unbelievable players. Completely. Paul McGrath. Paul McGrath. Um, you know, Townsend, Keane, Irwin, Kevin Sheedy. Yeah. Um, John, John Sheridan, John Aldridge, Niall Quinn, um, Dennis Irwin. Uh, it's just to name but a few, you know. Completely. Yeah. It's a frightening team. Andy Townsend, Tony Cascarino, John Aldridge, Ray Houghton, Ronnie Whelan, Dave O'Leary, Kev Moran, Mick McCarthy. You go through that list of names and you go, you're in that company and you're like, wow, unbelievable. Because that was that's obviously just a few weeks after Copenhagen, isn't it? You've just won the you've just won the cup with Arsenal. You've, you, you're a yeah. sort of you know you're a European Cup winner. And then you're obviously in that summer. You're in that summer. You're in the reckoning. How does that message get conveyed to you? How do you know you're? I mean, were you expecting to make the squad? Do you know? Would you have been disappointed had you not made it? Sort of thing. I would have been. Yeah, I'd have been very disappointed because I'd played. I'd played in the, our last qualifying game against Belf against Northern Ireland in Belfast. So yeah. I started the game at Windsor Park and finished the game. Um, but obviously, at that point, there's a lot. Of Alan McLaughlin. Alan scored Bottom. the goal. Yeah, well, Alan McLaughlin yeah. was my roomie. So we one all draw. Games. Yeah. One all draw. Yeah. We Quinn had smashed a volley in, I think, on the 60th minute from about 25 yeah. yards. And we thought, and we got pelters all night from the Northern Irish fans. We got absolute pelters from the that whole That must time. have been some match, actually. Yeah. The atmosphere was, it was the worst atmosphere that a football, a football match I've ever played. It was terrible. Mm. It really right. was. It was a nice atmosphere. You think a local a derby between two countries, but you know it was it was it was horrible, you know. Yeah. So to get out of there, Macca scored I think with about 15 minutes to go, and we got the one-one draw. But it's funny we actually celebrated on the pitch. Majority of the fans had left, and Spain were playing Denmark and Seville, and we just needed to better that score. I think get a scoring draw, and we qualified, and that ended up nil-nil. So once we got, it was about five minutes after we finished so we were waiting obviously on the on the pitch waiting for that result and then we got it so yeah out into Leeson Street till six o'clock in the morning celebrating <laughs> that is that's exactly the kind of celebratory night that I would expect from a Jack Charlton team. <laughs> well listen there was many of them Andy believe me. Yeah I'm sure if you I'm sure if you, if you'd have seen us on a Monday morning after being in Dublin for the weekend and we'd be playing Italy or Spain on the Wednesday you'd have thought we were there. <laughs> You thought we were ragars rovers, not the Republic of Ireland international team. You're Go in on. the World Cup squad, and then I mean, Italy in New York that first match. I mean, again, you know what an adventure that must have been yeah. that summer. Yeah, the giant stadium. Uh, yeah, we'd gone out. We'd gone out and acclimatised, and um, two weeks previous we were based in Florida, um, in Orlando. So um, Jack, after about a week, he. Um, off he went fishing for the weekend down to Miami, down to the Keys, ah. as he did. So um, it was funny because um, he said he kept it quite tight. And obviously, listen, we're preparing for a World Cup, so we're all professionals. So uh, and the, the humidity was something like 120 degrees. So we'd worked, mm. he'd said to Morissette, his assistant, listen, on Sunday, he said, let them let the hair down. They can go and have a game of golf, go out for a beer. It's up to them. But there's a curfew and the boys, they've got to be home at 11 o'clock. So we'd finish training. We used to do double sessions. So we'd train at 10 o'clock till 12. And then we'd go in and have lunch. And then we'd train from 2 till 4 um, at this complex. So 
we didn't train in the afternoon. And Morris says, right, listen, as a reward, you've trained well, you're all in good shape, you can have the afternoon off, go and do what you want, be your families, go and play golf, go to the beach, do what you want, go to the, you know, attractions, Disney World and all that. So we were like, no, we're going to downtown Church Street, um, which is in the middle of Orlando, <laughs> the yeah. Rosie O'Grady's for a beer. So John Aldridge orders about five limos. So we actually uh-huh. literally gets back as a shower, skips lunch, straight out. And I always remember these five limos pulled up outside Rosie O'Grady's. It was, you know, like the weather is now. It's like wow. 30, 25, 28, 30 degrees over there. It's roasting. It's lovely. And all the Irish yeah. fans are outside. And the next minute, all these limousines open and all the boys get out going into Rosie O'Grady's well. Oh, my God. What a wow. part. This is the week yeah. before we're playing Italy in the giant stadium <laughs> in New York. Well, that is we, left something about, else. we left at about quarter to 11 and we were literally carried out of the place, put back in the limos, never bought a drink all day. Um, and we literally got back to the hotel just in time for the curfew, so we didn't go over. So, And then obviously the following week, got our, game, got our, got our head screwed back on and trained hard and, and went to the Giants, flew up to and, New York. Yeah, and, and beat Italy, went and beat Italy. Yeah, beat the Italians with a, a Ray Houghton left-footed fluke-type lob over. Hey! Yeah, so absolutely amazing, yeah. And then another celebration, we stayed overnight in New York, and uh, we had another party. <laughs> wow. We certainly knew how to I, party, that's for sure. Well, because it was a definite sense, I think, that, you know, people had no connection to the Republic of Ireland around that time. You just wanted that team to do well. Because, yeah. you know, there was an empathy there. I mean, partly because of the, you know, the personal heritage, the dubious personal heritage of the players, the way the yeah. team was put together, which I think people got on board with. Um, and, you know, just the whole story of it, really. The fact that, you know, Republic of Ireland were kind of not really anywhere, were they? Mid-80s. Jack Charlton came in and turned yeah. you into one of the best teams in the world. It, it was quite a story. It really a was. Formidable, a, a formidable team. An actual Completely. Team. Not just a team full, it was a team full of premiership players, chaps. Yeah. It really was. Yeah. And, yeah. and you go through some of the names that I mentioned, but a few, you know, Jack, again, was very canny and, you know, brought in the right players that had to fit into the group. And everybody got on. It was a great group. We certainly knew. And people hated playing against us. Completely I'd right. I'd gone, I'd gone from playing that type of football at clubs Northampton where Graham was had that mentality of get the ball forward Palace was very same we got it forward early got it wide crosses in and we played like that for the Republic Jack was a no-nonsense get it up to Quinney knockdowns get it wide yeah. get it in the box and score goals and it upset a lot of play a lot of teams international teams I always remember seeing Spain coming to Lansdowne Road and they just and, and Italy and Baresi they yes. just they didn't have a clue what was going on they were like, that Spain game was the World Cup qualifier, I remember it, wasn't it? A big kick from Pat Bonner, yeah. one flick down, and then Stapleton maybe scored or Quinn scored. But I totally remember that goal, Eddie. I know exactly what you mean. So it was it was different. It was a different type of international football that we were playing. It was like a club team, wasn't it? Club yeah, team. it was. It was very much, very much. So, But yeah, great, um, unbelievable times. And obviously, with my parents being from Dublin and majority of probably 90% of my family all still living in Dublin. Um, it was, yeah, amazing, amazing to represent your country and experience those times that, that we did, something that I'll never forget. 
no, no, there, Tom Gold. McGrath like as a character. Paul McGrath like it's probably one of the nicest, probably about being one of the best footballers I've ever played with. Probably one mm. of the nicest men I've ever met off the park. A gentleman, absolute gentleman, a lovely man, very humble. Obviously, had a great career at Man United, and then Fer- when Fergie came in, he got rid of that drinking culture, and a lot of them went. But then went on to Villa, and if if you knew his situation, Paul, Paul's Paul's brought up in an orphanage in in London, and um, then went back to Dublin um, and had, had a hard time growing up as a kid, been in and out of foster homes. and So he carried a lot of baggage, Paul, um, and used to drink a lot. But when we used to go away, he never trained. So he never trained for Villa and he never trained for the Republic of Ireland because he'd just come to training in his, in his kit and he'd just walk around, he'd do a little bit of light running and he'd have, a, he'd have an outside ex, uh, exercise bike, a cycle phone to do some mileage on. But that was it. Because his knees were that riddled with arthritis and scars and he was just, they were done. They were shot. So, and how he performed, how he played at the level of football that he played at, especially with his drinking habit as well, because if you took your eye off Paul, if we ever went away and had a drink and you took your eye off him, he'd be gone and he could disappear for days. You know, we'd turn up on a Saturday and he wouldn't turn up until the Tuesday. He'd be down in Sligo somewhere, but Jack would get a call and everybody would be trying to track him. Um, and he'd say, oh, I just I went down to Sligo for the weekend and I ended up staying and, you know, he was just partying. And But he got away with it. He was the only player that got away with it because he was that good. He was that good. As a footballer, you say, up there with the best you played with? Oh, yeah, absolutely. He's in my, he's in my all-star 11 and probably be the... Wow! If not, yeah. if not the first, the second player on the list because he was just he was immense, he was absolutely immense. And that game against the the Italians in um, the Giant Stadium in New York, he um, he just had Baggio in his back pocket. It was frightening. It was absolutely frightening how good he was. It was, and we used we were in awe. People, we, you'd look at him and go, "How can he play like that when he doesn't even train?" Mm. It's amazing. What a footballer! Absolutely. Wow. On world class, so yeah, I guess world class players play with them when, to actually have when they play against the world class opposition, they 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 just do their they do their business, don't they? So uh, Paul McGrath would would actually really like playing against the top top opposition because he could do his thing. Yeah, Paul McGrath would have walked into the best countries, the top country World Cup teams in the in the world, and the top teams, you know. And he'd had a if he obviously if he didn't have the issues that he had um, around his. You know his, his drinking culture, and obviously it was well documented that he, you know, he was addicted. So such a shame. He'd have played, he'd have played for a long, long time at the very highest level. Um, but what, what a player, what a guy. I cannot speak highly enough of him. Unbelievable. Andy, do you want to uh, ask any questions about Ireland? We need to uh, wrap up in here. Yeah, no, I just um, well a couple of things really. It's just been great chatting. Um, yeah, we haven't got enough time. We haven't got enough time to talk about everything. But um, I mean, obviously, Eddie, there's that famous World Cup moment that's gone down in you know sort of the, the, the glory books, the great moment compilations of you know yeah. that 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 ridiculous um, moment during the Mexico game when Jack yeah. Charlton with his massive with his massive hat on yeah. tries to <laughs> get John Aldridge on. It doesn't happen quickly enough. So yeah. there's that, and it almost looked like he was holding a bag of goldfish. Yeah, didn't it? There's like a bag of water that someone was yeah. holding. But I mean, so presumably you were just a few meters away from that when it was happening. Yeah, it was crazy. It was just 
you know, the game's going on. The game's not stopped. The game's going on, but they won't stop the game. The ball's gone out of play and the referee's not stopping the goal. The officials are not stopping the game to let the substitution be made. Yeah. At that point, at that point, you could actually play as, you could throw them these bags of water that they had to nick. They weren't yeah. actually allowing, and then it was that hot. I mean, it was 120 degrees that day. Yeah. And, you know, in the shade. And we, the, in the dugouts, they had, they were ice cold. You know, had this cold steam coming through the back from generators. But on the pitch, it was frightening. And, and, and lads were dropping like flies. But they wouldn't stop the game and give them actually an official drink break. So you had to throw on these bags. Um, and, you know, when then substitution was trying to be made and we were trying to get water on. John was trying to get water on as well at that point to some of the players. It just, Jack just went crazy. So you turn around and you're like, oh, what's going on? You know, and he's, <laughs> he's just going absolutely ballistic. I, Aldo with his Scouse accents going absolutely ballistic. To the <laughs> he, was, he really was giving it some, wasn't he, Aldrich? Oh. It was like boys from the black stuff all of a yeah. sudden. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, but, um, I mean, it, it probably wouldn't have looked so ridiculous, but for those massive hats that everyone wore, you know, those, those huge baseball caps that, Sort of, you know, 60-year-old men were wearing. But the other thing that, um, that I was thinking about, again, this comes from blokes that you've talked to, including, you know, we must mention Nigel, who, who helped set this interview up. This urban myth has developed, Eddie, around this story where Jack Charlton told you he was going to play you in a match. Right. And you were told you were going to play. And then, you know, it comes to match day and you're not in the team and you're kind of, I might have got this wrong. I think I have got this wrong. But then you go up to Jack Shelton and say, I thought I was playing. Yeah. And Jack Shelton says, I don't know who told you that. And you're sort of like, you did. Um, but I, I might have just made that up or got the details wrong. No, I think what you're talking about, I was, I was doing, a, I was doing a, a Q&A at a gentleman's evening last year. And um, I was telling stories about Jack Shelton and what Tom mentioned, my roommate, Alan McLaughlin, or I don't know if it was you, Andy, had scored the right. goal in Belfast that night. Sure, yeah. Um, when you took going back again and how you found out about who was interested in you, we actually found out that World Cup squad on teletext on CFAX. Wow, <laughs> literally, you had, that's what you had to check. You had to check to see whether you're in the squad. Amazing, that's how we found out. So, I'm checking in, Jack's checking in at the same time with his wife, Pat. And I think this is the story because that never happened to me. So I don't know right. if there's been some cross okay. but what actually happened that day. So I think it's the Alan McLaughlin story that I was relating at this this gentleman. Right, team. got you. So um so we're waiting to sign in. There's pandemonium in the in the hotel at the airport and things are taking a little long. So in walks Macca. So he's standing we're chatting away and <clears throat> Jack turns round to him and says, What are you doing here? So he said, <laughs> <laughs> starts laughing, yeah, right, good one, Jack. And he said, no, seriously, what are you doing here? He said, Jack, you're, you're winding me up. He goes, no. So he turns to his missus and says to his missus, Pat, who has not got a clue about football, he goes, did I? Pat, I didn't pick him, did I? And Pat goes, <laughs> looks at Macca and goes, oh, no, I don't think so, love. He goes, <laughs> so he goes to Alan McLaughlin. So at this point, Macca's got steam because he was like, he went fighting to say his piece, Macca. Um, right. And he says, what are you? have been talking about he said i'm in the squad he said oh i don't think you are so he said right yeah so he gets on his mobile rings his missus back in portsmouth and says uh, she says well, all right love what's up you okay and he goes no i'm 
effing notice you. I've just turned up to the hotel and Jack says I'm not in the squad. What am I doing here? So he gets his missus to go on teletext and go through the squad and he goes, <laughs> oh, yeah, McGrath, McGoldrick, McLaughlin. And he said, there you go. And he gives the phone to Jack. He goes, there you go. And he goes, all right. He said, well, you're here now. You might as well stay. No. And literally, <laughs> I've, I've sneaked off. I've got my bag and I've sneaked off down to the room. Mackie comes in about 10 minutes later and he's got steam coming out of his ears. So um, he's gone absolutely ballistic. But that, that was just Jack. Jack used to call you by uh, whatever club you played for. He'd call you by, if he forgot your name, he'd call you Arsenal or call you Palace or you know, <laughs> Arsenal. What are you doing? You know, what are you doing there? That was rubbish. So he was, he was certainly a character. That is so. phenomenal. But I think that's, that's absolutely brilliant. Andy, yeah, but yeah, one of, the, one of the great stories that I could tell you about, Jack, um, funny, so many great memories of playing for your country. And, and, and he made it all possible. He made it all possible. So we thank him for that. Yeah, some brilliant memories from Republic of Ireland, Eddie, and perhaps you can tell us what you're up to now. So, effectively, for the last seven or eight years, I've been running a football education programme. Um, it started as a, a college academy out of Thomas Beckett, but I, I'm still an ambassador for Crystal Palace. So, I was doing some work in, in Northern Ireland and Belfast, actually, and the club approached me um, about becoming one of their foundation academies. So, I'm actually based... so out of Northampton College now. So I run a football education programme for post-16 students that get to train every day and play in the National Football Youth League and study a BTEC alongside it. So it's training and playing like a pro and getting an education alongside it. So that's backed by Crystal Palace. Um, it's based in Northampton, which I was before. So since about 2015, it's been a Crystal Palace Foundation Academy. I was going to say, Eddie, you must have picked up an awful lot, obviously, from when you were sort of coming through and picking up from various managers and coaches the, the right sort of things to say to young players, I suppose, to encourage them. And almost, I suppose, a bit of man management there, isn't there? Every young player is different and needs a, a little different, different types of encouragement, I suppose. And I guess yeah. from where you came from and those humble origins, you, you maybe learn along the way how to talk to young players and bring them on a bit. Yeah, you do. You do. Um, and I think I've taken a bit off everybody that I've played under. And then obviously, mm. you're like a bit of a magpie. You implement your own, you know, strategies and your own thoughts on how the game should be played and what you expect from your players. But you also relay the experiences that you've had as a player mm. through, through the eyes of the coaches that I played under. So there's a little piece of everything. Um, and then you probably put your own stamp on it. And, you know, are there any coaches that stick out for you, Eddie, during your career that, that had a real positive impact above and, above and beyond others? I think they all did. The, everybody that I played for, you know, if you talk, I mean, Graham, for me, would probably be the biggest influence on my career. Yeah. You know, um, when it wasn't going so well, he gave me the kick up the backside that I needed. Steve was... A different type of coach. He'd let you sort your own problems out. Um, George, and it wasn't until I really went to Arsenal that I started to actually get coached. The rest you've done yourself. You have to problem right, solve yeah. yourself. You go in, um, and then obviously going to Man City, Steve again, Frank Clark, Joe Royal, and then obviously the experiences with Jack. So you take a little bit of peace from everybody. And what I like, how I try to listen. You do the bit with, with young players now coaching. You know. 
you do all your drills, your technical drills, your physical drills, all everything, all the modules that technical, physical, tactical, psychological you go through. But I like to put an emphasis on young players to actually problem solve themselves like I had to. So mm. can they learn themselves, give them the information and can they do it and can they express themselves in the right way? And if they make a mistake, can they get back on the bike, you know, and, and go on and understand football? Understand the position you play in and understand your role within the team with and without the ball, you know, because you you've got to do both. You know, you just can't play with the ball. So mm. I, I put a lot of emphasis on on young my young players that come through my programme in teaching and coaching them that, you know. So a lot of it's visual, a lot of it's verbal. Um, and it's just getting that balance. You know, there's days where you have to give them, if it's recognising that, what you said, Andy, about putting your arm around young players. You've got to psychologically know every single player that comes into your building, comes through your door mm. every single day. You know, because certainly with the risks around mental health now being so high in just mainstream life, not just sport, you know, we're dealing with a different type of kids. So you've got to be aware of that and you've got to be understanding to their needs and, and, and just try and, and cater for that and, and bring them through. And hopefully they enjoy it and go on and be successful. But, you know, it's, it's a great programme. I love doing. People have said to me, would you not go back into management and I say no, not now. Ten years ago, maybe, but not at the age now. I love my job, you know. Mm. Five days a week, from eight o'clock in the morning till five o'clock in the afternoon is enough. Um, I like to spend time with my family at the weekends. I've got a grandson now, and going to be a granddad again soon. I play golf with my friends at the weekend and spend time with my family. So that's perfect for me. So that's exactly what I'm doing now. With your success, Eddie, in um, football. I guess your experiences can be, can be an inspiration for young players coming through. I actually, on the way to a game, took them into my house in Corby. And just quickly, I had a, a double garage that we converted and I had all my memorabilia in there and shirts and caps and pictures of, of everybody that I played with. And, and I opened the door and these 15 boys got off the minibus and my missus was like, all right, what are you doing? So I just <laughs> said to the boys, look, turn left in there, go in and have a little look around that room. Have a little look around that room. And it's not to make me look good. Okay. It's to show you what you can achieve. But to achieve that, you need to work hard every single day. You've got to eat, sleep and drink football. And if you do that and you get the breaks and you get a little bit of fortune, you get a little bit of luck, well, then that could be you. This could be you. So it's not to make me look good in your eyes. It's to show you what you can achieve. And I always say that to my young players that come through. If I can do it, you can do it. But it's infinitely harder now. So if you want it bad enough, you've just got to keep working as hard and harder every single day. I think that encapsulates your, your whole career, that, that, that uh, work ethic, starting off from Nuneaton to make the, you know, step up to Northampton, just making these gradual steps up. That's all been pushed with, with hard work behind the scenes and on the training field. And it's nice that, your story is back in Northampton as well. So you've got like, you still got that connection to Northampton. And how would you, Eddie, sum up, you know, just to finish off your, 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 your time at Cobblers and the place it has in your heart, really? Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And, you know, going, when you do reminisce and you go through the book, the book of champions that they made up and you look at all the pictures and, you know, um, 
and you, you know you're obviously through social media i don't do twitter but i do instagram and i do facebook and got a lot of cobblers fans and i still see graham i still go to graham invites me to a game now and again um and i was actually coaching at the club back in the early the late sort of 2008 seven i started went through to 2010 coaching the 14s and the 16s and and then it never worked out. We had a change in management and I left. But, you know, it is what it is. So I've got a lot of love and respect for the club. It was obviously my first pro club and it started me on on the trail to going on to achieve what, you know, I did. Um, I'll always be thankful and grateful for that. Great times, great supporters and uh, just a genuine all-round, you know, it's a good club. It's been up and down. They've had promotions. But I think if you... If you talk to the older bracket of Cobblers fans, that 86-87 team were, you know, a little bit special. It was a great time to play football um, and it done wonders for the community and the town and, you know, uh, and the economy. So I always look back with great memories and great fondness of, um, I think, Andy might tell me exactly how many games they played. They've 120, 112, 115. Uh, well, I think, uh, let me just off the top of my head, Eddie. Um, <laughs> completely off the top of my head. I think you missed four games that season. It was just a ridiculous time to be following the Cobblers, whether it was your first season as a 10-year-old or, you know, yeah. you're an old codger who can remember yeah. the 60s. I mean, that season was untouchable, absolutely untouchable. And yeah. everyone associated with it playing is an absolute legend. Yeah, and very much, and, and deservedly so. Deservedly so. We had a great definitely. Clive Walker, Dennis Casey, um, Graham. You know, with some f- phenomenal footballers, all young, hungry footballers. So yeah, it was. Um, it's where it all started. Obviously, the groundwork was done before that. But as my first pro club, it was that opportunity that I needed. And you know, I'll always be thankful to Graham for giving me that opportunity, and and you know, the football club itself. So. With the players I speak to, and I've spoken to uh, players of various vintages, I always just like to say thanks for putting the shift in and the claret and white and all you did you did for the club and probably will continue to do in the future. So thanks a lot for that, Eddie. Absolute yeah. pleasure. Thanks for yeah. having me. Um, like I say, I don't do it often, but when I do do it, um, the um, it, it's great. It's great. And as my missus would say to me, you know, your favourite subject is you. So <laughs> there you go. So it's been great to talk to you, chaps. Really appreciate it. And, um, you know, maybe we'll do it again sometime. Hope so. Yeah. Thank you, Eddie. Take care. Thanks a lot, Eddie. Thank you, Andy, as well. Take care, guys. Cheers, Cheers, mate. Thank you. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. 
Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.